beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This afternoon, I want to begin by telling you the story of a Japanese lieutenant, Hiro Anato. He was trained as an intelligence officer, and in late December 1944, he was sent to an island in the Philippines. His orders were to hamper enemy attacks on the island. He joined a small band of other soldiers who had been sent there previously. Part of Anada's orders were that under no circumstances was he to surrender or to take his own life. He was told that if trouble arose, his superiors would come for him. Just a few months after his arrival in 1944, the Allies overwhelmed the Japanese defenses and they took the island. By the summer of 1945, World War II was over. Yet Hiro Anato did not know that. He continued his campaign as a Japanese holdout, initially living in the mountains with three or four other soldiers. They continued to wage guerrilla activities and were involved in various shootouts with the police. Many attempts were made to convince these soldiers to come out. In October 1945, they found a leaflet left by Islanders which read, The war ended on August 15th. Come down from the mountains. However, they distrusted the leaflet, thinking that it was Allied propaganda. Toward the end of 1945, leaflets were dropped by air, with a surrender order printed on them from a well-known Japanese general. The group carefully examined the leaflet and figured it was not genuine. At one point, Hiro Onoda's own brother went to the Philippines and spoke to him via loudspeaker. Yet he and his men did not even trust this source. They thought that in some way the enemy was still trying to deceive them. Over time, the others in Onoda's group died, leaving him the lone survivor. He lived in the bush for many years. Finally, a Japanese student tracked him down and befriended him. Onada said that he would not surrender until his commanding officer gave the order. The student returned to Japan. The government tracked down his commanding officer who was working as a bookseller. He went to the Philippines in a tattered uniform and gave the order. Finally, 29 years later, after the war ended, on March 9, 1974, Hiro Onoda surrendered. So why did it take Hiro Onoda so long to finally conclude that the war was over? Well, his beliefs were faulty. Initially, he was unwilling to accept that the war was over only months after arriving in the Philippines. The various pamphlets did not convince him. He was a trained intelligence officer. He knew such things could be faked. He clung to the statement made to him when he deployed that he should not surrender under any circumstances, that if trouble arose, his commanding officers would come for him. The result was that even the personal intervention of his own brother could not convince him to surrender. Beloved, we all have certain beliefs. Our beliefs help us to develop a worldview, a perspective on life. We make decisions based on our beliefs. If we believe wrong things, 
will make bad decisions and do stupid things. Yet if we know the truth, the Bible says that it will set us free. This afternoon we'll consider how we are saved only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. We'll see how knowing who Jesus is and trusting in God's promises about him opens the way of salvation for us. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. We are saved by a true faith in Jesus Christ. We'll consider the benefits of true faith, the character of true faith, and the contents of true faith. Lord, 7 begins with the question, Are all men then saved by Christ, just as they perished by Adam? The previous Lord's Days have spoken about how we need someone to open the way of salvation for us, and how Jesus Christ is the true mediator who can bridge the gap between God and us, caused by our sins. This question focuses on who benefits from Christ's saving work. Will all people be saved from God's wrath on the final day? Or will only some be saved? How do we know who will be saved? If you ask people in Canadian society about their religious beliefs, you get some interesting results. A survey conducted in 2018 by Angus Reid in partnership with Faith in Canada 150 shows that 21% of Canadians are religiously committed, meaning that they hold a strong belief in God and regularly attend religious services. In addition, there are another 30% of Canadians who believe in God, in heaven, and in an afterlife, but who do not get involved in organized religion. They might go to weddings and funerals, but their faith is mainly a private matter driven by prayer. What's interesting is that although only roughly 20% of Canadians attend religious services regularly, 67% believe that God exists, 60% believe in life after death, 57% believe in heaven. That means that millions of our fellow citizens think that they will share in God's blessings in the life to come, even though they don't worship Him in this life. The problem that these people face is they do not understand how they are saved. They think that they're decent people and that as such, God will reward them with eternal life. For many of them, Jesus Christ does not enter into the picture. He's basically irrelevant. Beloved, many such people are in for a rude shock when they die, when they have to face the judge of heaven and earth. They're basing their life on faulty assumptions and on wrong beliefs. God is not going to allow anyone into heaven because they are a good person. The Bible clearly testifies to the fact that we are not good people. With a fall into sin, we've become self-focused and self-seeking creatures. By nature, we are corrupt. We're inclined to all evil. It's true that God restrains the outworking of evil in many people's lives. 
Not everyone becomes a serial killer or a mass murderer. But there are many who fail to honor and glorify God in their lives, even though this was the purpose for which God made them. Our sinfulness makes us liable to God's judgment. We need to be delivered from our sins and from the mastery of Satan. The Bible testifies that many people will not inherit eternal life. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. There, those who find it are few. The Bible makes it clear that to be saved, you must believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. In John 1, the Apostle speaks about Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He writes, But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In John 3, Jesus made clear who will be saved from the wrath to come. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. At the end of John 3, Jesus repeats this, saying, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching when it says, Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. The Catechism here refers to grafting. A grafting is a process by which you take a branch from one tree and put it into a notch you've cut in the stem of another. On its own, a branch cut off from one tree is not worth anything. It'll just dry out and wither away. For such a branch to have life and produce fruit, it needs to be connected to the stem and to the roots of a tree. The beautiful thing about this illustration is that it teaches us about how necessary it is for us to be connected to Christ. If we are not rooted in Him, if we do not find our life in Him, we will die. Now you might be wondering, how is it that we are rooted in Christ? What is it that binds us to Him? The answer is true faith. Faith is what connects us to Christ. So we need to ask, what is true faith? Well, faith is the same as believing or trusting True faith is believing or trusting in the God of the Bible and in all the gracious promises that He's made to us. We'll get into that a little bit more in our second point. What needs to be clear right now is that faith is the tie that binds us to Christ. You need to believe in Jesus Christ and what God promises us in Him in order to be saved and to share in eternal life. This afternoon we read together from Romans 11. 
This passage makes it abundantly clear that not all people will be saved. It shows how some branches were cut off of the tree and others were grafted in. Here Paul speaks about how many of the Jews have rejected Christ. Many of the old covenant people of God didn't believe in him. And so it is as if their branches were broken off of the tree. Paul explains that through his ministry to the Gentiles, many have come to faith in Christ. And so it is as if they, as wild olive branches, were grafted into Christ. They were permitted to take part of the root and fat of the olive tree. They were allowed to share in Christ and all his benefits. In this passage, Paul issues a stern warning. He urges the wild olive branches, the Gentiles, not to boast against the natural branches, the Jews. Paul reminds us of the fact that we do not support the root, but that the root supports us. To this we might respond, branches are broken off that I may be grafted in. Paul admits that's true, but he points out why they were cut off and on what basis we remain connected to Christ. Paul says it was because of unbelief that the Jews were cut off. And he makes it clear that it is only through faith that we have life. And Paul repeats his warning. He says, So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The point, beloved, is that we should not be arrogant about our salvation. It's not we who, through our faith, save ourselves. Our salvation is God's work. It is undeserved grace. Beloved, there is great benefit in having true faith. It's by faith in Christ alone that we are saved from God's eternal judgment, that we're allowed to share in the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Dear brother or sister, boy or girl, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Are you connected to Christ through a true faith? Are you bound to him in such a way that you seek your life and your salvation in him alone? Do you believe that Christ has died on the cross for your sins? In your daily life, do you expect everything you need for body and soul from the hand of your Savior? Your very salvation depends on the answer you give to these questions. For only those who are grafted into Christ by true faith will be saved. Brings us to our second point, and it will see the character of true faith. The focus here is on what true faith really is. The first reference to faith in the Bible is in Genesis 15, verse 6. 
There we read that Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The word used for faith in this text is related to the word amen, which means it is true and certain. It brings us to the heart of what faith is all about. Faith is the solid conviction that what God has said is true, that what God has promised will be done. Faith is believing in God, trusting in Him. Our Catechism defines true faith as a sure knowledge and a firm confidence. Faith has content. We need to believe certain facts. We need to accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. The Bible sometimes speaks about faith as something that can be handed down through the generations. For example, Jude refers to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Parents cannot hand down their personal belief in God to their children as much as we might want to at certain times. Yet we can and should pass on the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ to our children and grandchildren. Faith not only includes a sure knowledge, but also a firm confidence. It is trusting that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This trusting in God is personal. We cannot believe for one of our loved ones. Each person needs to learn to put their confidence in the Lord, trusting in His protection and provision, both in this life and for the life to come. The Bible describes faith for us in Hebrews 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or as another translation puts it, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not yet see. Faith involves believing in something that is not a reality yet. Let me give a few examples to illustrate the point. What would you do if someone you don't know calls you and says they have this wonderful investment opportunity for you? If you invest $5,000 with them today, they guarantee you're going to double your money within two years. Would you invest with such a person? To most people, that would seem like a scam of some sort. The market doesn't normally return 50% on your investment each year. You'd be foolish to trust such a person. What would you do if someone offered you a job with a 20% pay rise? Would you take it? I think you would need to have confidence that the company employing you is a good employer, that your boss would be someone decent to work for, that you would enjoy taking on the responsibilities of your new job. You need to have a certain level of trust or confidence before you quit your current job. 
The same applies to starting a love relationship or to many of the other big decisions we make in life. We cannot guarantee how things will work out. But we need a certain level of trust or of confidence to commit to someone or something. We see this worked out practically in the lives of God's people in the Bible. God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. He repeated this promise at different times. Also when Abraham grew older and when Sarah was past childbearing age. Was it easy for Abraham and Sarah to believe God's promises? Nope. Common sense would tell you that if you've not had any children by the age of 40 or 50, you will not receive them after that. But Abraham believed, he trusted that God was able to do something that was humanly impossible. He had confidence that the Lord was God, the Almighty One, that he would be faithful to his promises. Or think of the people of Israel gathered on the border of Canaan. They heard the reports of both the ten spies and the two spies. Both reported that the land of Canaan would be a great place to live. Caleb and Joshua said that Israel would be able to overcome the inhabitants of the land. While the ten spies disagreed. They argued that the Canaanites were strong. And that they lived in fortified cities. Some of them were even giants. Do you know why they had such radically different reports? The ten spies looked at all the obstacles facing them, and they were filled with fear. Yet Caleb and Joshua looked to the Lord, and they trusted his promises. Beloved, at times in our lives, we can be overwhelmed by life's problems, by difficulties in our health or the health of a loved one, by financial hardships, by relationship struggles, by problems at work, by seeing loved ones straying from God's ways, by the death of loved ones. There are times when, humanly speaking, we would say, Our problems are big. They take over our thinking. They can cause us to lose all perspective on life. We get scared about what might happen. We feel abandoned by God. We think life is not worth living anymore. We might even contemplate suicide. What do you do when faced with fears and anxieties, with trouble and sorrow in your life. Well, don't focus on your problems. Focus on God. Put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, too, had to walk the pathway from suffering to glory. Consider how he did that. He trusted in his Father in heaven. He set aside regular times for intensive prayer. He committed his whole life to doing 
what God desired of him. Even when Christ faced the greatest struggles of his life, he depended on his heavenly Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that, if possible, the cup of suffering might pass him by. But he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, when God had forsaken him, he still said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit with his whole heart. Christ relied on his Father for all he needed in life and death. Beloved, there's times when we're going to struggle to put our faith and trust completely in God. There's times when our problems in life are big and when our faith is weak. Consider the father in Mark 9 who brought his son to Jesus to heal him. His son was mute. He could not speak. He had epileptic fits. He was demon-possessed. He said to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus picked up on the man's doubt, expressed in the words, If you can. Jesus said, All things are possible for the one who believes. Now, this was not some unattainable goal that the man could never reach. All Jesus was asking was for the man to trust in him. Yet this man was aware of how small and how inadequate his faith was. He did not become a believer when he gathered together a sufficient amount of faith. He became a believer when he risked all on the small amount of faith he had. The boy's father said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Like this father, we may face struggles and uncertainties in our faith. There's times when we're strong and trusting, times when we're weak and doubting. But in those weak moments, we need to turn to God and ask Him to provide the faith and trust we need. For ultimately, faith is a gift of God. It's worked in us by His Holy Spirit. Beloved, can you point to anyone in the Bible whom God has let down? Is there any situation that shows that God does not keep His word? In the personal experiences of your life, has God ever failed you? The Bible shows us God's faithfulness. It speaks about His steadfast love. It shows how God's children turned to Him in times of trouble and how God delivered them from their distress. Our God is reliable. He keeps His promises. And that's when we may be sure of our salvation for God has promised us the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. All those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will receive these benefits. It brings us to our final point, the contents of our faith. What do we need to believe in order to be saved? 
Is it enough to believe in the existence of God? Well, no, it's not. James says in chapter 2.19, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So James shows us that believing in the existence of God is not enough to be saved. So what then must a Christian believe? Our catechism provides this answer. All that's promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. Beloved, I'd like to draw your attention to that first word of answer 22, the word all. It is necessary for a Christian to believe all that's promised us in the gospel. There is no reduction here. It is wrong for us to deny any part of God's word. We need to believe even those things that this world rejects, like the manner in which God created the world, like the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection and ascension. We need to accept even those things that other churches question, like the teaching that homosexuality is a sin or the fact that God does not allow women to enter into the special offices. And yet, our faith has a specific focus, a focus on the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul summarizes the gospel message in one line when speaking with the Philippian jailer. When the jailer asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Here we see how the promises of the gospel are focused on Jesus Christ. And that's appropriate, for he is the one mediator between God and men who gave himself as a ransom for all. As Peter said when he addressed the Sanhedrin, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Beloved, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Do you look to Him for forgiveness of your sins and eternal life? Does your faith in Christ also show in your daily life? Do you set your eyes on Jesus when faced with hardships and sorrows, expecting all good things from Him alone? Draw near to the throne of grace expecting to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. Faith is what binds us to Christ. It's the God-given instrument through which we are allowed to share in Christ and His benefits. Now, beloved, we can be like hero Onoda, and we can doubt all the evidence put before us. Despite mounting evidence, he refused to believe that the war was over. For 29 years, he lived in hiding, continuing to fight a battle that was long settled. He was deluded in his thinking. It caused him to waste much of his life. God's Word teaches us about how Jesus Christ has opened the way of salvation for us. It calls us to repent of our sins and believe in Him. 
The Bible assures us that the truth of the gospel will set us free. Free from sin and Satan. Free from guilt and shame. Free from doubt and fear. Believe the good news of how Jesus Christ came to pay for our sins and restore us to God. This is the way of life, of abundant life, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together hymn 61.